You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit process. U.S. investment bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a vote. financial crisis. But I believe we have voted today for the next generation. Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good news. start of the debate. Welcome everyone to this seminar, and without further ado, I'd like to give the floor to Professor Derek Keogh, the President of the ECU. Good morning, everybody. Today is part of a global event. We can see it in terms of the people present in the room here, but it's also part of obviously the United Nations 75 dialogue that, as you know, that the UN launched this dialogue in January. And we began this, or the UN began it on our behalf as an opportunity to really to understand the hopes and expectations of the citizens of a common home relating to the big issues and international cooperation in the future. COVID happened, and none of us could have predicted it this time last year. But I think that the pandemic reminds us really of the importance of international cooperation. And we've already seen examples in the year of the really the, the disastrous consequences when we fail to see ourselves as a global community and politicize challenges that face our planet. I'm delighted that DCU, as I say, is able to take part in this global dialogue. It's especially important that today's focus is on inequality and financial crisis, because what the pandemic has shown us clearly, even at a university level, but in the city, nationally and beyond, is that the crisis has impacted on the disadvantaged disproportionately. So it's important for us to recall the critical imperative of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and nurturing that sense of community and a sense of responsibility across the planet. We have tried as a university to align our strategy and our priorities with those development goals. And we're pleased that we pride ourselves as a university that puts people first and not people first in a selfish way, but people first in, in a global way. Delighted that this discussion today will facilitate uh, all of us, not just in identifying problems, but to discuss solutions. And above all, what an event like today reinforces for us is the importance of empathy, that the 21st century attribute, the ability to put ourselves in other, in other people's shoes and to develop solutions to the problems which tackle us all. As I say, that the, the organisers have put together a wonderful panel. I look forward to kind of listening in and listening back. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're very welcome. And without further ado, I'd like to give the floor to our chair for today, which is Professor Derek O'Brien from Dublin City University. Thanks, Annalika. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our first speaker, Dr. George Jopoulos, the Associate Prof of Economics at York University in Canada who will introduce us to the economic policy during the crisis. Thank you, pleasure to be here. First, I will give an overview of the causes of financial crises in general. Simply put, the biggest problem with creating a financial crisis is mismanagement of financial sector with respect to regulation. Typically what happens is it's a credit expansion in light of weak financial markets, low transparency, monitoring and enforcement, and we have what we call in economics, asymmetric information between borrowers and lenders, which creates moral hazard and average selection. So essentially, there's wrong pricing of risk, which then leads to a crisis. And these factors explain the most recent major financial crisis in East Asia in 97, the 2008 financial crisis with heavy deregulation, financial innovation, and massive capital inflows, lending to subprime borrowers, mispricing risk of these borrowers. The euro crisis, where you had a creation of a euro too big to fail phenomenon, which led to excessive lending to Southern European countries who had weak financial institutions. So that is the essence of a financial crisis, the factors. And let's look at the income and wealth effects. Generally, a financial crisis will lead to a worsening of balance sheets of, of typically of major financial institutions, reducing net wealth, which creates uncertainty and 
and the quality of, of borrowers out there, including other banks. So you have a, a severe contraction of lending by banks, contraction in the money market, reduced liquidity in the financial system as there's deleveraging. And so now it's starting to spill over to Main Street, as we say, from Wall Street to Main Street, less lending happening throughout, meaning less investment, less in hiring, and reduction in real wages and employment, reduced consumption, reduced real GDP. So it's spilled over to the real economy. So income is reduced, consumption is reduced. You also have an asset price effect, asset prices decline, a negative wealth effect, which leads to a drop in consumption and a drop in GDP. So those are the elements of a broad effect on income and wealth. The distributional effects, here's where we're starting to see inequality. Crisis typically hit the vulnerable, particularly the young. You have a reduction in employment in the formal sector and informal sector, and people move from the formal to the informal, putting downward prices, wages on the informal labor market typically older, wealthier people. They're exposed more to the stock market and their pensions have declined. On the whole though, the, the overall effect is that there will be an increase in income inequality despite the drop in the high income group wealth. Homeowners, middle income wage earners, well, reduced asset price of their home value, so their mortgage debt in real terms has gone up. Higher interest rates, meaning higher interest payments. Small and medium-sized firms are hit harder. Essentially, they have less access to credit relative to larger firms. You have the weakening power, bargaining power of unorganized labor and small firms. Just to give you a simple example, here in Canada, we're going through a crisis with COVID, but we have one of the top retailers in Canada simply not paying rent to the, to the landlord for the past seven months. This is the bargaining power of these large firms, probably will go to litigation. They have the wealth to go to court. Simply, this, this cannot be done by a small firm. In some cases, you have governments that retrench fiscally, which leads to cuts in public outlays and social program payments, and that hits the less well-off people. This was certainly true in the Euro crisis where you had some countries forced to do austerity, which really led to a decrease in government spending and programs and increase in taxes. You have banks attempting to increase revenues by increasing fees. If you have your own currency, you have a depreciation of your currency, which means import prices are higher. And this could hit people hard if you have individuals or a country that is a net importer of food. So look, let's look at the empirical evidence, the data on this. 2008 financial crisis, the recovery largely top-down and finance-driven, and this was mainly to supposedly to, that we have a too-big-to-fail problem, we have a lot of systemic risk. Uh, you let one bank go under, it'll bring down the whole system, so you have to theoretically bail out these large banks. There was a flood of liquidity into the, the system, supposedly to start lending out to smaller businesses. It did not happen. You had large banks hoarding reserves, and then you had really the financial sector quickly recovering. Soon after 2008 or nine, a quick recovery in the financial system and the profits and the compensation of employees, whereas other sectors, a gradual decline over 10 years. And, and, and we have Perry substantiating that income inequality increased during the Great Recession. Top income earners declined by 4%, medium by income by 9%, and 20% decline to lower income people. Another study, average income for all groups except the top 1% declined, and the top 1% of U.S. income earners has risen. Now, Ireland, a slight decline in income inequality, actually, but you have to look at disposable income. And that is in due to the strong social transfers given during the crisis in Ireland. So we need to distinguish between market income, your gross income and disposable income. And they could vary in the response of a crisis. So we have the study by Perry showing inequality at the top income group rising, but declining 
gradually when you look at disposable income. And same with low income groups, rise in market inequality income, but a gradual rise in disposable income. So developing countries, another study by Habib et al. Income inequality of middle income increases, and that's due to a lot in working in the manufacturing sector, and that and the manufacturing sector typically gets hurt. Also, urban households get hurt more than rural households. You saw this urban-rural divide also happening in countries of Greece, Italy, and Portugal during the Euro crisis. Now, there's been some discussion of late that actually inequality can lead to a financial crisis. So the causation is the other way around. And it really started with the paper by Rajan. And the argument is, well, at first it was highlighted in the United States where some argued that the involvement of the U.S. government with government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac really pushed to make households for Americans very viable. So there was um, a lot of sponsoring of these mortgage-backed institutions and competing very hard to lend money to low-income subprime households. So inequality led to the crisis. Also, in developing emerging countries, at times you have the government taking on a lot of debt, creating deficits for social spending, which could lead to the sovereign debt crisis. So the argument is income inequality leads to financial crisis, which leads to a greater <clears throat> income inequality phenomenon. It's received some traction, and you can see a study by Barajas that does um, over many countries where a simulation study shows that decreasing in income inequality leads to a finance, and t time t is a financial crisis, which exacerbates the, the inequality and slowly increases. So there's some, tr there's some evidence of this direction of causation. Finally, just a touch upon some reforms and remedies. We probably know a lot of the reforms, what happened in the United States, an important one, the Consumer Protection Agency that uh, laid out rules for firms lending out and making it more uh, legible for borrowers. An important one, just identifying systemically important financial institutions and doing stress tests. So this is all to reduce too big to fail problem, reduce high risk derivative securities trading. The big one, Basel III, higher capital ratios, which essentially involves bail-ins instead of bailouts. So shareholders take more of the loss. Counter-cyclical leveraging. So when the economy is booming, you actually reduce the growth of lending to avoid excessive lending during a boom time. Fiscal and banking reforms and the European Central Bank acting as a last resort, reducing household borrowing or reducing the risk, having certain loan to value ratios, expansion of transfer payments during a crisis, not unlike some of uh, the fiscal measures being taken now in many countries, including in Canada, where there's support given to businesses who are revenues have declined, self-employed people who really didn't have any assistance. So these can be implemented in any crisis, including a financial crisis, to prevent income inequality. And we see the central bank and the government taking on a greater role to provide liquidity to small businesses and self-employed. So in Canada, we have the Canada Mortgage Bonds, which essentially Bank of Canada is buying to provide much more liquidity in the financial system to prevent this contraction of lending. It has essentially worked, but there still needs to be a little bit more given directly to small businesses. But I think we're learning a lot through COVID on the social policies that can be put into place under any crisis that can prevent income inequality. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Geopolis. I'll take the time to uh, introduce our next contributor, Professor Dr. Arthur Rahman, 10th Governor of the Central Bank of Bangladesh who will discuss the response of central banks to the financial crisis. Thank you, Chair. We just heard a very good presentation from Dr. George. He has given a very good overview of the financial crisis and the other crises that we have already faced. And now we are in a bigger crisis, really originating from COVID-19. And 
in his last words he was talking about the role of the central bank which probably uh, he has touched the right chord when he said that the central banks all around the world have really come out with a very innovative liquidity support to not only the small business but the business as a whole i would say in bangladesh particularly you know the central bank has been playing a very uh, pivotal role in terms of taking the economy forward and stabilizing the economy and i'm sure uh, all of you are aware that we are passing through a very period of in a radical uncertainty we really don't know the implications of this huge crisis it's very difficult to say how the world will unfold unfortunately the period preceded we had a lot of attack on the globalization the global connections were ruptured and lot of uncertainty in the business of the international cooperation so i'll not be surprised if in a situation like this if the countries go for more inward looking in terms of food security in terms of improving supply chains in terms of taking advantage of the digital transformation and go for e governance and e learning and remote working go for green recovery or uh, better uh, investment in people so these are the kind of forces that i am foreseeing in the coming days so let's go back to uh, how did we face the 2007-8 global financial crisis immediately after that crisis you know the whole world came forward to really find solutions and the central banks particularly came up and but the un system also came forward i was party to an inquiry report on the sustainable finance which came out in 2015 by the unep and there we came out with three solutions that we need a inclusive and sustainable finance for really facing any kind of crisis that george has already uh, elaborated on and this uh, has to be effective particularly the effectiveness of the market in embedding new drivers of value creation and risk to meet the needs of the intended beneficiaries of the financial services you know their financial services have always been working only for the finance not for the real economy so i thought we better to reorient our attention to the real economy we have to be efficient because efficiency of the system in terms of underlying cost in delivering the service and their digitization probably is the answer at the moment and of course our focus on resilience of the system to shocks flowing from the unsustainable development and potential volatilities of the transition process so these are the areas we really pushed i thought that this is also true even the post covid crisis the financial crisis that is accompanying it and we have to really remember the true purpose of the finance in fact christine lagarde in 2019 said reshape finance into something that is more aligned with societal values and more connected to interest of all stakeholders from customers to workers to share stakeholders to local communities and future generations so this, she was both you know looking at present and the future and uh, paul colier said a society should be moral according to whether its laws were designed for the benefits of the most disadvantaged another quote from uh, selah of the world bank she said you have good finance bad finance and ugly finance you need to make sure it serves citizens the smes and not just the bankers or the wealthy or the chosen few i think this tells you that where should we really uh, focus our attention given this let me focus on the bangladesh campaign for financial in- inclusion i was fortunately from 2009 to 16 i was leading this campaign and there we have tried to give a new look to the central bank i we thought we should make central bank more developmental particularly in the developing context not for the developed country i'm talking about the developing country like ours you know and there the goal should be maintain a healthy uh, growth rate to keep low income climate change threat in bangladesh for inclusive prosperity so that is the goal and strategy was bolstering domestic demand and enable increased consumption and we are putting a lot of support for agriculture smes cottage industries so that people really have money and even today that lesson is being followed in bangladesh and bangladesh is doing far better than many other countries action was 
the inclusive financing with particular attention to the bottom of the pyramid. So we created a lot of you know, innovative financing strategies. While reaching the bottom of the, of, the, of the social pyramid, we really depended a lot on the ICT and digitization that was unfolding and where we, we really wanted to give more money for creating employment and non-farm activities uh, in the in, uh, SME sectors. Women empowerment was prioritized. Women entrepreneurs were given special credit lines and the rural economy was prioritized and green finance and other innovations in Bangladesh and Bangladesh Central Bank played the leading role in, in making that. And now the government is also coming forward. And there were rewarding outcomes of these interventions that we made, actually. Bangladesh uh, uh, really coped pretty well with the global financial crisis. Uh, we got about 8% growth rate over the last 10 years, particularly last four or five years. Uh, although this year we had a problem and of even then the government uh, experienced about five plus growth, although uh, World Bank says much less. Financial inclusion enhanced agriculture, SMEs, women and green initiatives and uh, 7% increase uh, in commercial branches, 68% in ATMs and 33,000% increase in mobile money accounts. And this really impacted on the, on the ground and the po rural poverty came down by half. And even urban poverty was stable, at least, you know, not you know, going up. And Bangladesh uh, as a whole experienced a poverty reduction by almost half from 40% to uh, 20% and extreme poverty to 11%. Uh, but unfortunately, this COVID has really uh, washed away some of those gains and the poverty is increasing now. The uh, informal sector has been badly affected by COVID. And so given that, uh, the pandemic-induced slowdown has affected even Bangladesh. World Bank says uh, this year Bangladesh will have 1.6% growth. Asian Development Bank says it will have a 6.8% growth. And uh, IMF says it about 4% growth. And uh, Bangladesh says it will have far better than this growth. But there is no doubt the informal sector has been badly hurt. Poverty has increased. Inequality has intensified. So we got to really focus on that. And in that circumstances, Bangladesh government has come out with a very, very prudent uh, stimulus package. The, uh, as you heard her, our prime minister in the UN, uh, she said about 4.03% of the GDP has been uh, given as a stimulus package. This has increased further. It's now 4.3%. And uh, uh, the implementation is going on. Export-oriented large manufacturing industries are getting the money, uh, although SME, the housing and agriculture small, there is a money in place, but the implementation is a bit slow. But the money is coming up and the central bank is taking initiative to implement it further. It's a huge uh, injection of money by changing CRR, repo rates uh, uh, and uh, restrictions on bank dividend and uh, uh, change in advanced deposit ratio. So about about $7 billion have been injected just on easing the regulations at this stage. And I thought this was a smart move, although we need to wrap up at some point in time. But at the moment, I thought it was a good move. So the digitization that we followed has really paid us off very well. Our mobile financial service, as you know, the world famous Bcash and others are really doing pretty well. And uh, during this COVID crisis, we see that mobile financial service transactions increased by 68% in July, year to Y. A number of MFS accounts almost doubled to 43 million between February and July alone. And this is growing every day. Uh, so still there are challenges ahead. And uh, one of the challenges, of course, as I said, the smaller borrowers finding it difficult to avail the loans which have been created by the government through the stimulus package. And I think about 25% of the stimulus have been uh, disbursed uh, until September, where 80% of the stimulus have been uh, uh, disbursed for the large borrowers. So here it lies, uh, you know, the indication of the inequalities that is increasing, even, even on a very good program like this. And special attention, therefore, is uh, required to monitor implementation of the stimulus packages, particularly at the lower end of the pyramid. And the central bank is already coming forward with a digital dashboard, you know, based monitoring uh, and bank MFI partnership can be further utilized to reach the smaller borrowers. As you know, Bangladesh is the, you know, social laboratory for 
microfinance and uh, and 700 plus microfinance institutions are in the field we have a small stimulus package for them but i think this can be further increased and uh, if we can monitor well and we we can really take the money to the villages one good thing that is happening in bangladesh there is a lot of remittance money coming from abroad and uh, this is really increasing almost every day this year we are expecting 20 billion plus dollars of remittance money coming to bangladesh and this money will be going to the rural areas and this money really will create a lot of liquidity in the in the rural areas and the consumption will go up and the rural bangladesh has changed actually you know you have more small entrepreneurs more of the you know nurseries more of the poultry farms and the employment has increased in the rural areas even in these difficult periods but as you said urban poverty is a big problem here in bangladesh informal sectors have been badly affected but bangladesh government has been very prudent by not going for a very strong lockdowns the garments factories have been kept open even the salaries of the garments uh, 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 girls uh, uh, have been given by the government at a very low rate of interest through the central bank and mobile financial services so these are some of the positive things that has happened in bangladesh and i strongly feel if we can continue to keep the money market liquid and the low interest rate through refinance that has been created by the government and the central bank and uh, if we continue to refinance the smes and if we keep the central bank developmental outlook steady and uh, if we can make digital financial services our new normal and continue to prioritize agriculture and green recovery bangladesh probably will gain a new example of recovery even in covid led financial crisis professor uh, raman just to thank you that, that was uh, excellent and we'll just go over to our next contributor, Dr. Anna Fernandez de Arangis from Antwerp University, who will discuss socioeconomic policy in Europe from a legal political perspective. Thank you very much. Well, today I want to talk to you a little bit about social policy in the EU, and I will focus on the proactive role of EU, not so much on the perhaps negative interference that EU has had in the in the past, particularly in time of the previous crisis. Instead, I want to center on the active role that it has taken into developing its social dimension. Okay, so as some of you may know, even though Europe is considered one of the more progressive societies in the world, according to the most recent data, 22.4% of the population live in households at risk of poverty. In terms of uh, inequality, 20% of the top earners uh, received 5.1 times as much money in 2018 as the 20% uh, with the lowest disposable income. Those in unemployment are uh, more likely to be in a situation at risk of poverty and social exclusion. But unfortunately, uh, increasingly, we have a problem with in-work poverty, meaning that while employment might be key to have a better life, it's not always, not all kinds of works provide the necessary resources to live a life out of poverty. Overall, nearly one out of four people in the EU experience either income poverty, uh, severe material deprivation, or live in a household with a very low work intensity. The previous speaker has already talked about how income poverty and exclusion are, is not equally divided uh, across our societies. And in the case of the EU, this is true. This is true in the case of particularly vulnerable groups, such as children, young people, women, or people with disabilities. But it is also true that there are inequalities across uh, member states. There's research that shows that the previous recession pushed inequalities even further in the EU. This is both within the member states and particularly hitting these vulnerable groups, and also between the different member states, creating particularly a great uh, difference between southern and eastern countries and western countries in the EU. Uh, in the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic, the European institutions expected this will also affect incredibly income. They particularly expect there's going to be a 9% increase in unemployment. And while there is supposed to be a partial uh, recovery during the 2021, they still expect rising poverty and inequalities, particularly among vulnerable groups with lower skills or uh, certain sectors, uh, sectors of the economy, such as tourism, that are uh, heavily affected. So 
Considering uh, the situation in Europe, it is very clear that poverty and social exclusion or inequalities are quite a challenge in the EU. In the first place, I want to talk to you about the social policy instruments that uh, have been in place. And these were already in place during the, the previous crisis. The oldest of these instruments is the social open method of coordination. It's almost 20 years since uh, this mechanism was uh, put in place. And it's basically a, a voluntary system where EU institutions and member states report how they are doing in terms of social protection, healthcare, and pensions. It is voluntary and soft, a soft instrument, but it has served to develop indicators and to boost conversations with member states, sometimes learning from better experiences and other times in terms of name and shaming. On the other hand, we have the Europe 2020 strategy, which was the strategy of the EU for the years 2010-2020 that tackled diverse uh, challenges for the EU. Uh, one of these challenges uh, that was framed in the form of headline target was poverty and social exclusion. And particularly, the EU and member states aimed at uh, lifting 20 million people out of poverty. This objective was accompanied by a set of rules or a set of guidelines and the European Platform Against Poverty. And this is to be supported by a number of funds, uh, perhaps most notably the European Social Fund or the Fund of European Aid for the Most Deprived. Most of these policy instruments are monitored through the European semester. The European semester was originally conceived as an economic and, and market monitoring system, uh, but increasingly, especially since the adoption of the Europe 2020 strategy, it has also taken on board uh, social issues. As such, it's a very interesting tool because it combines a number of different policy areas of the EU under the same uh, umbrella monitoring system. It works in a cyclical manner. So in autumn, the Commission launches the annual growth uh, survey where the Commission identifies different priorities or obstacles for the European Union. These are later to be addressed at the national level by member states. And in the winter, they present their national reform programs, identifying particular country-specific issues or bottlenecks in order to incorporate these European-wide priorities. Then in the spring, the Commission uh, analyzes this national reform programs and provides uh, country-specific recommendations and member states are deemed to implement this until the cycle restarts again. Uh, this is normally uh, how the European semester works but because of the COVID-19 crisis 2021 and possibly 2022 will be slightly different um, with a particular focus on recovery and resilience plans of the Commission. So these are the policy instruments uh, but in parallel we also have a normative social core at the EU that has been developed over the years. Uh, in the first place, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the foundations, and we see these uh, social foundations of the EU in the values of the EU, which we see in the Article 2 of the Treaty of the European Union, where we emphasize uh, the respect for human dignity, for human rights, solidarity and equality. And we also see it in the general principles of the European Union. In Article 3, where the Union says that it aims at becoming a social market economy that combats social exclusion, promote social justice and protection, aims at uh, social and territorial cohesion and solidarity. Now, these two provisions are particularly important when the union aims at exercising its competences. They are important because the union has functional competences. This means the following. The union can only act insofar as it is to implement one of these objectives and according to the values. As such, when the union exercises competences that are enshrined under different provisions, these initiatives need to target one of the objectives that I just mentioned. The values and the objectives of the European Union uh, are supposed to be mainstream through different policy areas. Uh, and this is enshrined in Article 9 of the Treaty on the Function of the European Union, which is a so-called horizontal social plan. And on top of this, of course, we have the Charter on Fundamental Rights, and that covers a number of important areas with a social dimension, not the least uh, human dignity, an entire chapter on equality, and perhaps most remarkably, an entire chapter on solidarity that includes rights on fair remuneration, social protection, social security, healthcare, etc. Now, considering these foundations, there are a number of competences that the union has to act to take initiatives. When we talk about uh, social initiatives uh, for social protection and directly targeting inequality, we mostly talk about the social competences of the union in Article 153. 
This title covers a number of different fields that go from working conditions, social security and social protection for workers, integration of people excluded from the labor market, etc. Now, not all these fields allow for the adoption of binding instruments. Some of them are limited to cooperation and how these instruments need to be adopted depend on its field. Some of them required unanimity and some of them required only qualified majority voting. So they are very diverse. Now, even though there are a bunch of fields and, and I think there's even seven or eight fields where the union may act from the stricter competences, there are also a bunch of limitations. One, an initiative should not affect uh, excessively a small and medium enterprises, but it's also a certain limitations towards the protection of social protection systems of member states, including that the European Union cannot regulate anything that is a matter of fundamental principle of social security or that affects uh, disproportionately the financial equilibrium of member states. There is also a non-regression clause. And on top of that, there are a number of areas that are specifically excluded from the competences. With these social competences, we see that there is a lot of legislation on fair working conditions and health and safety. But unfortunately, uh, a number of other important fields, uh, particularly for those who do not work and suffer from inequalities, have been untapped. Besides the competences, the stricto sensu, there are also a number of other competences that, while not being social per se, they have developed also an important uh, social dimension. In this uh, line of thought, we talk about equality with a lot of regulations on, on equal opportunities and treatment. We talk about citizenship. We talk about free movement of workers and social security coordination. Uh, we talk about a number of employment competences. And these are also complemented by a number of competences to develop funds at the European Social Fund that has a particular legal base and uh, the competences to aim for uh, economic and territorial and social cohesion. Now, what I've been talking about, the, the social policy part, the instruments and these competences, were there in place before the Great Recession and still we experience a, a an increase in inequalities and an increase in, in poverty and social exclusion. My question here is whether we are doomed or not to follow the same path within the, the new economic crisis. If we did not use these tools more effectively in the previous one, would change things for, for 2020, 2021. In this sense, in 2017, an interesting event took place and was the adoption of the European Pillar of Social Rights, which was launched by the Commission and then interinstitutionally proclaimed by the EU institutions and the member states. What this instrument is in essence is a set of 20 principles that are divided in three chapters on social issues, namely equality, fair working conditions and social protection. Whether the European pillar of social rights is a game changer or not is a discussion. On the positive note, there are a number of key elements of this new instrument that could perhaps tackle one some of the deficiencies of the, the previous system. Uh, among this, I wanna highlight three. The pillar is uh, far more concrete than other instruments that we have. It identifies very specific rights to give you an example, this could be the case of the right to minimum income from a more general right to social protection or social assistance, or the right to a fair minimum wage from a more general right to the right to fair working conditions. Secondly, the pillar has a very important connecting function. There are important links made not only within EU law, but also with international instruments on social rights. And as such, it can be key to identify different problematic areas or different issues that we have to look into. Thirdly, the European Pillar of Social Rights is supposed to act as a compass. In this regard, it's interesting to mention that this pillar is accompanied by the social scoreboard, which is a set of indicators that allow to monitor and supervise how member states are doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis other years or other member states in a number of specific targeted areas on social issues. Now, this is for the positive, of course. On the negative side, uh, the pillar is for now a soft law instrument, and it lacks a clear roadmap, which puts into question whether this will be used in the following years, when the following commission perhaps not, doesn't have the same social interest as the one, or perhaps the economic effects of the corona crisis are, are being felt more and more. Also, on the positive point here is that in 2021, we expect to have an action plan on the pillar, which perhaps will address some of these limitations. So far, the European Pillar of Social Rights has served to 
activate the, the social poor and on top of some of these provisions that I was talking about earlier. In terms of legal initiatives, this has led to the adoption of a recommendation on access to social protection for workers and the self-employed, to adopt a directive on work-life balance, directive on transparent and predictable working conditions. There is currently a proposal for, uh, by the Commission to adopt a directive on minimum wages that needs to be discussed before the Parliament and the Council. And there are plans to incorporate, perhaps in the future, a European unemployment benefit scheme in the form of a reinsurance system, uh, an instrument to, for the protection of platform workers, and quite more far in the future, an instrument on minimum income. To end my, my presentation, 10 years ago, the, the EU and member states committed to lift 20 million uh, people out of poverty. 10 years after, they only managed to lift 3 million people. Yes, of course, there was a financial crisis, but the fact that they did not live up to those objectives, even though they were already aware of uh, an economic crisis happening, leads us to think that the union shall do more. My previous research shows this failure or this underwhelming results are not necessarily a, a result of the EU being unequipped, but more that more result of not activating the, the tools that we already have. In this regard, it is a very positive thing that the European Pillar of Social Rights has activated and has led to this increasing activation of the social competences and leads to the expansion of the social dimension of the EU. Now, and this uh, here I want to make a link with what the first speaker has said, uh, is that this is one aspect of EU law. This is what how the EU can take a more proactive role. What we cannot forget is that um, there remain enormous constitutional asymmetries that favor economic and market interest. And as such, activating the social competences is not enough to become a, a social market union. For that, a more a structural reform would be necessary that targets uh, more fiscal and, and banking reforms and mixes the different uh, strands of the EU law in a more comprehensive way. So here in my uh, presentation, thank you very much. Uh, that was great. Thank you. And then we'll have the final uh, uh, contributor to today's session, our colleague in the school, who's uh, looking at the European system of central banks legal framework on social policy. So, Annalika, can I hand over to you? Thank you. So, yes, today I'll be talking about the European system of central banks, but also about central banks in general. Unlike our second speaker, I'll be talking a little bit more about the legal framework. So what kind of legal issues are we facing when we talk about social policy and central banks? Now, most modern central banks were founded in the late 20th century, and they were based upon this idea of central bank independence. Now, this idea comes from economics, and it basically boils down that independent central banks can control for inflation better. So that's the large idea. And the idea behind that is that if you have politicians in charge of your printing press, then they're going to promise free stuff. They're going to promise uh, free education or healthcare just so that they can get reelected. And in order to do that, they will print money and therefore will have hyperinflation. And hyperinflation is bad for everyone. So therefore, we have independent central banks. But this is not one framework. There are even more type of central banks within this central bank independence idea. So we have banks with dual mandates or single mandates. Single mandate just focuses at price stability, whilst dual mandate will also look at other options or other targets. And we have different levels of independence. So to give you a concrete example, if we look at New Zealand and the New Zealand Federal Reserve Bank, that mandate of price stability, what inflation target to reach, the governor of the central bank agrees upon that with the minister of finance. So there you have a dialogue between the central bank and the minister. And therefore, we say that that bank is very low in its independence. Also, if we look a little bit further to the United States, we see that there is a dual mandate. The Federal Reserve Bank of the United States will actually target both price stability and full employment. So they have two main mandates. And their independence is vested in normal law. So it only takes an act of Congress to change the central bank. So therefore, we say that's independent, but less so than, for example, the South African Central Bank, which has a single mandate, but in context. So the South African Central Bank has to focus at price stability because it's good for the economy. And this independence is vested in the Constitution. That means it's a lot more independent from the government. And we even recently saw this come into play when there was a, a crisis and there was a debate between the central bank and President Zuma. And this went in front of the Constitutional Court, and the central bank was 
actually granted their independence again. This was reaffirmed by the court. And therefore, the president lost. So we see that when the independence is vested in the constitution, it's a lot more independent. Now, when we come to the European system of central banks, which is the European Central Bank or the ECB, together with all the national central banks of the Eurozone, and they're highly independent. So the treaty states that they're not allowed to seek instructions or seek to instruct. So member states or member state bodies cannot instruct the ECB. Now that's very independent. And this independence is even more so than, for example, a constitutional independence because it's vested in a treaty. And it's vested in the treaty of the functioning of the European Union. And in order to change that treaty, all member states must agree. And the moment that you start to change that treaty, the debate opens on every aspect of the treaty. So it's very, very difficult to change that. And that's why arguably this European Central Bank is the most independent on the planet. Now, this independence was vested in the idea of a very narrow mandate. So from a democratic perspective, yes, they were independent, but they had this really narrow mandate, which was based on the monetarism idea of monetary policy, which strictly separates monetary policy in one corner and economic policy in another. So this was a very narrow concept. And the idea was, well, monetary policy is just a matter of advanced math. So there's no political choice there, so we don't really need to hold them accountable that much. But even here, we already see these authorization gaps. So price stability itself can be defined by the European Central Bank. It's not defined in the treaty. There are some limitations which even further increase the independence, such as it cannot directly lend to governments. There are hearings before the parliament, so there is some form of accountability, but there are no consequences to this. So when we look at expectations and problem, it was already considered, oh, this bank is probably too conservative. It cannot actually do anything against the crisis because it has such a narrow mandate. And others said, well, this accountability will be an issue. So when we look at the euro crisis and now the COVID crisis, well, with the euro crisis, the ECB was forced to act. There was no political will to come to a solution because it would be difficult for the politicians to sell it at home and they couldn't actually reach an agreement. And these policies, and I'd like to refer a little bit to the first speaker, he already mentioned that there were these very strong austerity policies. Now, these were debated in econ by economists, so some argued in favor, others argued against them. And the moment that these policies are economically debated, so austerity was partially enforced. It was negotiated between what we call the Troika, and the Troika consisted of the IMF, the European Central Bank and the European Commission. And they really negotiated on economic policy, on what fiscal discipline a country should run. And the moment that we see this ECB acting on this economic terrain, where it can be debated, where there are serious economists giving serious economic debate, that's the moment the legal fiction was shattered. So. Under the law, we thought, well, this is just advanced economics, it's advanced math, it's advanced macroeconomics, but it's not doesn't include political choices. And we slowly start to see that actually political choices are dripping in. So today we know that central bank policy does actually include choices. And central bank independence has also developed and matured. So it's focused less now at independence, and economists have a tendency to focus more on checks and balances. And we also saw that actually the lesser independent banks did a lot better than the ECB during the euro crisis. So coming to social policy, the difficulty here is that a central bank usually has a limited mandate and very limited accountability. Now, in a democracy, when choices have to be made, we like to know that there is some form of democratic accountability, which comes through the legislator, through the government, but that's very difficult with very independent central banks. So the question becomes, well, should a central bank make these choices? Remember, a central bank is not the government of economic affairs. It's not the council that we elect to take care of our national economic interests or social choices. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot actually include social policy because there are some social policies that are arguably so important and so agreed upon that they should be part of every single institution in the European Union or in national countries. 
Now, with the ECB, we've seen that they actually slowly accepted climate change as part of their social policy. Now, that doesn't mean that the ECB is actually going to go out and plant trees, but they promote what they call green bonds. Now, green bonds are investments into green products. All sounds lovely. And we can all agree that climate change is very important and it's better to invest in green. But what is green? And the question that I want to ask, is the central bank the right body or the right organ to make such decisions? As an advantage, central banks are a lot more efficient. So their decision-making can be a lot quicker than governments. And they're also capable of taking politically unwanted decisions. And we saw this during the euro crisis, when there was a political uh, lack of political will, when there was a standstill, the European Central Bank managed to step in. But on the other hand, the fact that they're not elected also means that they're not very democratic. So do we want a central bank to make these choices about what is green, what type of social policies we should focus on? And a lot of these decisions made by a central bank are very difficult to undo. And we shouldn't aim to be able to undo them that quickly either. Because if we look at Mario Draghi in 2012, the euro crisis was at its height and Mario Draghi said, listen, whatever it takes, we will do to keep the eurozone together. And that single statement actually stabilized markets. So because he can actually follow through, because markets know that a central bank can follow through, these decisions have a lot of effect. So therefore, we shouldn't be able, aiming to undo them that quickly because they would lose this massive effect. So the questions that I want to leave you with is, first of all, what social goals do we want the central bank to be promoting? Is there a hierarchy of social goals? And what happens if they're conflicting? So, for example, Professor Rahman mentioned that a lot of inequality in Bangladesh was counteracted by focusing on the clothing industry and on agricultural and small and medium enterprises in agriculture. Now, these are not the best industries when it comes to climate change. So here we see a small conflict starting. Now, what should a central bank do? And when they make these choices, is it up to a central bank who's not democratic? Or should we make central banks more democratic? Or should we leave it to the government? government? So these are the questions that I have for you as an audience. Annalika, thank you. So I want to thank all our contributors today. It was a really excellent seminar. To thank Annalika and our colleagues in the Dublin Law and Politics Review for organising the event. Well done, guys. Well done.